Section 29 of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Sherman, Jr. A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 8, Spheres of Action. Chapter 1, Jews, Part 1. As the apostasy of the enforced converts from Judaism was the proximate cause of the establishment of the Spanish Holy Office, so they continued to be almost the exclusive object of its energies, until the similar treatment of the Moors created, in the Moriscos, a class with even greater claims on its solicitude. The rooting out of the latter, however, in the early years of the 17th century, was so complete that they virtually disappeared from the records of the tribunals, while the Jewish New Christians remained, and, for more than another century, provided the major portion of their more serious work. It had been easy, since 1391, to compel baptism by the alternatives of exile or death, but it had never been deemed necessary to supplement this by instruction in the new faith or by efforts to effect a real conversion. When Ferdinand and Isabella were aroused to the fact that the conversos were Christians only in name, terrorism was the sole method that suggested itself of accomplishing the great task of securing the desired unity of faith. So, when the expulsion of 1492 filled the land with a new multitude of neophytes, there was the same disregard of the duty of persuasion and instruction. The only utterances on the subject seemed to assume that they would in some way instruct and fortify themselves in their new religion. When in 1496 a royal pragmatica forbade them for three years to farm the royal revenues, the reason alleged was that such occupation would distract them from obtaining due instruction in Christian doctrine. In 1499, the Suprema ordered that the conversos anterior to 1492 should live scattered among old Christians, while the recent ones should be separated from their rabbis, living by themselves in towns, and strengthening their faith by punctual attendance on divine service. It was not until 1500 that it bethought itself to provide that all the banished Jews who returned, claiming to be baptized, must exhibit certificates of baptism for themselves and their children. They must observe the feasts and attend mass and sermons, and all children over six years of age must, within six months, know the four prayers, the seven mortal sins, and the confession of faith. When the enforced conversion of the Moriscos created an even greater multitude of nominal Christians, there were a few equally ineffective instructions issued as to both classes, to which little attention was paid. The simplicity of belief in the adequacy of these measures was apparently grounded on faith in the effectiveness of the inquisitorial process, of which we have incidentally seen so many illustrations during the early period. That confidence continued unabated, and the enforcement of uniformity in this fashion was followed energetically, with only such intermissions as might arise from the lack of accessible material or from indolence in searching for it. Where there was zeal there was little scruple, as appears from a letter addressed, about 1540, by the Tribunal of Llerena to the Inquisitors of Spain and Portugal. It had arrested twenty-one persons, in addition to three fugitives and two deceased, on suspicion, probably because they were on their way to Portugal, and it now asked to have all the registers of the peninsula ransacked for evidence to justify their prosecution. We have had occasion to see how slender was the proof required for this, the slightest adherence to any of the ancestral customs of Judaism, whether of religious significance or not, sufficed, and lists of three observances were carefully drawn up for the guidance of inquisitors. 
The more obvious, such as the avoidance of pork and lard, the removal of fat from meat, the observance of the Sabbath by changing linen, lighting lamps, and abstaining from work, the killing of fowls by decollation, the keeping of stated fasts, eating meat in Lent, and the like, were known of all men, and perpetual watch was kept by old Christians on the household of conversos, so that all such lapses were eagerly reported to the tribunals, as required by the edicts of faith. They furnished ample ground for suspicion, justifying arrest and trial, when inquisitorial methods ensured that no lurking Judaic tendencies could escape detection. An illustrative case was that of Elvira del Campo, tried at Toledo in 1567. She was of Conferzo descent and was married to Alonso de Moyo, a scrivener of Madridejos, who seems to have been an old Christian. According to witnesses who had lived with her as servants or were her near neighbors, she went to Mass and confessed and gave all outward sign of being a good Christian. She was kind and charitable, but she would not eat pork and, when she cooked it for the household, she handled it with a rag so as not to touch it, which she explained by saying that she had a throat trouble which made it disagree with her, and that handling it made her hand smell. There was a little cumulative evidence about putting on clean linen on Saturdays and not working, but this was insignificant and the case rested on pork. The chief witnesses were two of her husband's employees, Pedro de Leano and Alonso Collados, who lived in the house, and their evidence went much into detail as to their spying about the kitchen, peeping into cupboards and watching all the details of her housekeeping. Liano testified that once he and Collados talked about her putting a leg of mutton into water to soak overnight, when Collados said he thought there was some Jewish ceremony in this, and it would please him much to know it, for he would accuse her to the Inquisition, as he was on bad terms with her. Yet Collados, before the tribunal, concluded his testimony by saying that he wished her well for her good treatment of him, that he held her to be a good Christian because she went to Mass and spoke ill of no one and was very reserved, rarely leaving her home and talking with but few people. Elvira was arrested early in July, and at first her trial was pushed with speed as she was pregnant, but her confinement, August 31st, caused a delay of three months. She admitted not eating pork, but attributed this to medical advice, for a disease communicated to her by her husband, which she desired to conceal. Little stress was laid on the other charges, and she strenuously asserted her orthodoxy. Of the twelve witnesses against her, she identified six, but her effort to disable them for enmity failed, except as regarded the two most damaging ones, Collados and Diego Hernandez. Of thirteen witnesses for character, consisting of ecclesiastics and neighbors, all but one, who professed ignorance, gave emphatic testimony as to her being a good Christian, attentive and regular in all religious duties, obedient to the precepts of the Church, and in no way the object of suspicion. There was evidently nothing to do but to torture her. This, as we have seen above, see page 24, was administered twice, and resulted in her stating that when she was eleven years old, her mother had told her not to eat pork and to observe the Sabbath, and she knew this to be against the Christian law. But, as her mother had died when she was eleven years old, we cannot unreasonably doubt its truth. The next day a ratification was obtained in the shape that her not eating pork, changing her chemise, and observing the Sabbath were in pursuance of the law of Moses as taught her by her mother. She had never mentioned this to anyone, for her father would have killed her and she feared her husband. On the strength of this, in the consulta de fe, there was one fanatic who voted her relaxation, but the rest agreed upon reconciliation with its disabilities, confiscation, and three years of prison in San Benito, which were duly imposed in an auto of June 13, 1568. But in a little more than six months, the imprisonment was commuted to spiritual penances, and she was told to go where she chose.
Thus, besides the horrors of her trial, she was beggared and ruined for life, and an ineffaceable stain was cast upon her kindred and descendants. What became of the infant born in prison is not recorded, but presumably it was fortunate enough to die. Trivial as may seem the details of such a trial, they are not without importance as a sample of what was occupying the tribunals of all Spain, and they raise the interesting question whether in truth the inquisitors believed what they assumed in the public sentence, that they had been laboring to rescue Elvira from the errors and darkness of her apostasy and to save her soul. The minute points on which the fate of the accused might depend are illustrated by the insistence with which they dwell on her abstinence from pork, on her refusal to eat buttered cakes, on her use of two stewing pots, and on the time at which she changed her chemise and baked her bread. Subjected on the one hand to the ceaseless espionage of servants and neighbors, and, on the other, to the pitiless zeal of the tribunals, even the heroic obstinacy of Judaism, which had triumphed over the countless miseries of the dispersion, gradually succumbed to this all-pervading persecution, so ceaselessly and relentlessly applied. As generation succeeded generation, with no hope of relief, this unremitting pressure seemed gradually to be attaining its object. The prosecutions for Judaism commenced to diminish sensibly. Valencia had a large converso population and, during the first quarter of the 16th century, the trial averaged between 20 and 40 a year. Then came the enforced baptism of the Moors, who for some time furnished a predominant contingent. The latter were temporarily released from inquisitorial jurisdiction in 1540, and during the three years 1541, 1542, and 1543, there was not a single trial for heresy. In 1546, they were again relieved from the Inquisition and, in the following 16 years, until 1562, the total number of trials for heresy was but 48. In fact, in the ten years between 1550 and 1560, there were but two, showing that Judaism there had almost ceased to be the object of inquisitorial activity. In Toledo, which included Madrid, during the sixteen years, 1575 to 1590 inclusive, there were but 23 cases. In 1565, an auto at Seville presented 74 penitents without one Judaizer, and there were none in the Coenza auto of 1585 in which figured 21 Moriscos. Even as early as 1558, when the Suprema was magnifying its services to obtain from Paul IV the grant of prebends, it admitted that for some years there had been but few Judaizers found, but it alluded vaguely to some recent discoveries of them in Murcia, who would soon be punished. In fact, not long afterward, Paolo Tiepolo, the Venetian envoy, alludes to the arrest in Murcia of a large number of Jews. In 1567, Pius V, at the request of Philip II, empowered Inquisitor General Espinosa, for three years, to have the Judaizing new Christians of Murcia and Alcaraz absolved, either publicly or privately, with a salutary and benignant, but not pecuniary, penance. Clerics, however, were not to be habilitated to obtain orders or benefices. There is a story that Dom Joao Suarez, Bishop of Coimbra, after the Council of Trent, made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, in the course of which, at Cyprus, he met many Spanish and Portuguese refugees, from whom he gathered information which he communicated to the tribunal of Yerena, resulting in the detection of many Judaizers in Extremadura. They were treated like those of Mercia, for Philip, in 1573, obtained from Gregory VIII a brief similar to that of 1567 for the benefit of the Judaizers of the district of Yerena, except that the faculty was limited to one year. Even greater privileges were granted, in a brief obtained by Philip in 1597, to the Judaizers of Asiha and its district. 
for not only were they to be absolved like theirs of Mercia, but all prisoners under trial were to enjoy the benefit of the pardon, with no note of infamy on themselves or their descendants, and this time of grace was to endure for four years. These may not have been the only instances of such favors, and they indicate a tendency towards an entire change of policy. That there was hopefulness that the Inquisition was accomplishing its work is seen in a careful state paper drawn up for the Suprema in 1595 by a distinguished prelate, Juan Batista Perez, Bishop of Segorbe, who felt justified in assuming that the baptized Jews remaining in Spain after the expulsion of 1492 had now become good Christians, except one here and there, and that their law was forgotten. In this, the good bishop was careful to limit his praise to the descendants of those who had been baptized a century before, three full generations having passed under the chastening hands of the holy office. He evidently was aware that a new factor had been injected into the religious problem, a factor which was to give the Inquisition occupation for nearly a century and a half more. This was due to the conquest of Portugal by Philip II in 1580. Although the union of the two kingdoms was merely dynastic and their separate organizations were preserved, the facility of intercourse which followed led to a large emigration of new Christians from the poorer to the richer land. They had not been exposed as long as their Spanish brethren to inquisitorial rigor and, for the most part, they were crypto-Jews. The fresh justification which they afforded for the activity of the Inquisition, after the suppression of spasmodic Protestantism and the expulsion of the Moriscos, and the part which they played in Spanish Judaism, seemed to require a brief review of the curious history of the early Portuguese Inquisition. It also affords an insight into the relations between the new Christians and the Holy See, and thus throws a reflected light on the struggles of Ferdinand and Charles V with the Curia. End of section 29. Recording by Robert Sherman, Jr., Washington, D.C., www.nyckidd.com.